0: From NPR News, this is Invisibilia, and today, we're going to start with a question that was recently asked of the customers of the Rise Coffee Shop in Midtown Manhattan. Lulu, what's the question? It's a very hard-hitting question. It is.
1: Do you like puppies or kittens?
2: Puppies are cute. Doesn't everybody like puppies? Kittens. I like kittens. I think they're
3: cuter.
4: Oh, for sure puppies.
3: Puppies. The dog is always happy to see you. It's
4: just, it just wags its tail. Cats, man, they won't. They Come here. Come here, Joe. Come here.
2: Nothing.
1: Now, the reason these people are talking about this is because up at the register at this place called Rise, they always put out two tip jars, two big glass jars with little chalkboards in front. And every day they write on the little chalkboards two
0: different categories to choose from. So one day it might be cassette tape versus vinyl. Another day it might be Samsung versus Apple. Or kittens versus
5: puppies. Puppies all the way. I'm a kitten person. I am definitely a cat person.
0: For sure puppies. I hate cats. There's been one cat that's like more of a dog than a cat. I enjoyed that cat.
1: RISE started doing this about two years ago, and Danielle Cloutier, one of the baristas there, said it completely changed
0: the amount of tips people were giving.
3: Oh, definitely. It's definitely getting us more tips.
0: Inadvertently, they seem to have stumbled on this powerful impulse which is written into people, this urge to want to clearly differentiate, declare their
2: category.
5: I am definitely a cat person. I'm a
2: dog person.
0: Yeah, and the categories themselves were so
1: clearly defined, it was like there, right below the surface, was this whole world of qualities associated with what it means to be a cat person or a dog person.
5: Dog people are chatty. They like to talk to people on the street.
6: Cat person likes to stay at home, maybe they don't want to go out as
5: much.
2: Dog lovers are also like fun-loving and loyal.
6: Most people who are more attached to a cat, from my experience, who more only think about themselves.
1: So what is that? The seemingly irresistible drive we all have to cast the quarter and define a category? What is that impulse all about? Which brings us to babies.
6: Look at this. Look at
0: this. This is sound from a Look study of four month old babies done by a psychologist named Lisa Oakes. It's one of a handful of this. studies that Oakes has done, which looks at categorization in young babies, the most famous of which looked specifically at how babies think about cats and dogs. <laughs> We actually first
1: heard about this work from another developmental psychologist, Faye Hsu at Berkeley.
0: Yeah, Shu told us about this cat and dog study Oaks did, where babies were shown cat and dog pictures, beginning with a series of pictures of only cats, all different kinds of cats in all different kinds of positions.
6: First picture, young babies will look for a long time. When you show the next picture, so a picture of a cat, they will still be pretty interested. But over time, you show them five, six, seven uh, pictures of cats. They get bored over time.
1: Just another cat? Eh. Exactly. Who cares? And it's at that point that subtly, without fanfare, a picture of a dog is slipped in.
0: So let's pause for a moment and think about the dog.
6: A dog. It's a lot like a cat. Uh, it's still a four-legged animal. It still has two eyes, furry, etc.
0: And remember, you're a four-month-old baby. Like, a little while ago, you probably couldn't tell the difference between your toe and a chew toy. You came out and everything was awash. But there you are, and there's this cute furry thing
6: with four legs. So how do the babies respond? They say, oh, this is new and interesting. And they look longer at the dog. Uh, So that tells us they're really distinguishing between the categories, um, say cats and dogs, uh, at a fairly young age.
0: The ability to form categories. It doesn't get a huge amount of respect in the parenting world. It's not like your first step or your first tooth. Nobody's taking a picture. But as Feishu and any self-respecting developmental researcher will tell you, if you want to be a human being and you want to make it through your day... You need it.
6: To categorize objects around us is
0: extremely important. Because when you're able to recognize an object as a member of a particular category, all your knowledge about that category guides your response to that thing, which means you don't have to figure out everything from scratch every time you encounter something new.
6: So it really saves us a lot of time and energy because then we can say, oh, I know about cups. I know how to use them. I know what they're made out of.
0: But imagine if you couldn't make
1: categories, and there are people with brain damage who can't. Then suddenly, even the most basic things in life are a challenge. You walk into a new room, and there's a couch you've never seen before. And you don't have the category couch.
6: You might think, oh, gee, the the couch looks very strange. Uh, It's a shape I don't recognize. And um, you might start to think, okay, maybe something I should avoid. It could be a bomb could be a sinkhole because you know we do tend to be a little bit scared of things uh uh, that we don't know anything about so if you didn't have
1: categories organizing the world around you everything you encountered would be like that
6: kind of like stepping off uh onto a new planet look at their clock what's that coffee pot what do i do with it microphone
0: do
1: i eat you lulu (laughs) okay sorry okay
0: This is Invisibilia, a show from NPR News that looks at all the invisible forces that shape human behavior. And today, the invisible thing we are looking at is categories and how they shape our lives. We're looking at social categories, racial categories, personality type categories. Because the odd thing about categories
1: is once they are set out there in the world, boy, do we obey them.
0: Okay, Lulu, so I'm going to get us started off with a story about the most basic primary category, the very first category we are ever placed in. Lulu, what is the very first question that people ask when they hear that someone has just had a baby?
1: What is it, a boy or a girl?
0: Yes, those are your options. You can be a boy or you can be a girl. And so much of our lives are shaped by that first distinction. You know, from that category flow radically different lives. So this is a story about someone who has changed dramatically over the last couple of years, but who, when I first started talking to them about two years ago, found themselves kind of slipping in between those two categories, boy and girl, really in a way that I had never heard of before.
2: Hi! Oh, hey, how's it going? Come
0: on in. This is a person I met named Paige
2: Abendroth. Abendroth means the color of the sky when it's that deep red right before the sun sets.
0: Paige has bright blue eyes and long black hair in a ponytail. Go ahead
2: and make yourself Thanks.
0: We were in San Diego, by the way, setting ourselves up to talk. I'm going to make you scoot. Scoot, 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 scoot. Scoot, 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 scoot. So after we sat down, I asked Paige to show me some pictures of herself from about a decade before.
2: So there aren't many.
0: In the pictures was a man, a man in a naval uniform. He was very buff,
2: strapping. Yeah, very military. I had a high and tight haircut. And there they were, those bright blue eyes. You look
0: very, you look pretty conservative here too. Yes, I do. Photos from a time in Paige's life when Paige was male. Paige spent the first three decades of her life as a man. But Paige's story is not the transgender story that you typically hear. Typically, people who are transgender feel like they are one gender trapped in the body of the other gender. Their internal gender identity is misaligned with their biological sex, but it's static. It stays the same. But when I was talking to Paige, that didn't capture her experience at all. Because when I met her, Paige was flipping. Flipping between the category male and the category female.
2: I flip back and forth multiple times a day i will say maybe spend 20% of my time in guy mode and the rest of it in female mode. One morning, Paige would wake up feeling strongly that the gender at
0: the core of her being was female. But then suddenly...
2: It's just kind of like...
0: There was a change. And Paige was in guy mode. When that
2: happened, all kinds of things about Paige changed. Her posture changed. Yeah, my weight kind of moves up to my shoulders... Like, my center of gravity is kind of up here.
0: More significantly, she told me, there was a real
2: psychological shift. The way I see the world and the way I interpret the world is different.
0: When Paige was in male mode, Paige was less interested in people, in talking to them, in making eye contact with them. I'm a lot more introverted. I'm a lot more, I'm quieter. But in female mode, she was much more expansive. And sights, sounds, smells, likes, dislikes, they were all different.
2: When I'm female, all my emotions are like just really vivid, like colors.
0: Basically, Paige was constantly and very abruptly bounced between two starkly different ways of being in and filtering the world. Paige wasn't able to dictate when or where this happened. I I really have no control over it. She'd be sitting in her office, talking to her boss, and bam, she'd be walking down the street. Bam. Now, when this
2: happened, it wasn't like Paige was an entirely different person. I'm always the same person. I experience the world differently. But I'm still me. I still am in control of myself. I still have my same wants and desires. There was just
0: this profound difference beneath everything.
2: It's just a sense of knowing, like the way that you know you're a female right now without having to be told, it's the same way that I know that I'm a female. And when I'm a guy, it's the same way I know I'm a guy. It's just this instinctual knowing of what I am. By the way, right now, are you male or female? Definitely in girl mode, yeah. And how long have you been in girl mode right now? Uh, About an hour, I'd say. So
0: maybe you're thinking that Paige seems nuts. Mm-hmm. Paige herself
2: has had that thought. I thought that I was going crazy.
3: Yeah. I mean, um, some people first hear about this, um, you know, they may wonder if it's dissociative identity disorder, which is formerly known as multiple personality disorder or a form of psychosis. This is Laura Case. A researcher who has worked in the lab of a
0: very famous neurologist, a man named V.S. Ramachandran. At UCSD. And a couple years ago, they got an email from a woman describing exactly the same kind of experience
3: that Paige describes. Someone who experiences the switching back and forth. And while on the one hand, they were dubious. We get a lot of interesting emails in our lab, emails from people claiming all kinds of wild-sounding experiences. On the other hand... They study the brain,
0: and they have seen brains do all kinds of things. They've seen brains that suddenly stop recognizing faces, brains that think their owner has a mysterious limb. So they were curious.
3: Here's a person who goes back and forth in terms of what their brain seems to be telling them about whether they're male or female. How fascinating would that be to look and see what could be changing in the brain um, or in their environment to be causing that shift in identity?
0: So they decided to look into it. Over the past couple years, Case has found dozens of people with this experience and Case has started testing them in different ways, including giving them psychological screenings. And what she found was that as a group, these people are not mentally unstable.
3: They simply don't have dissociative identity disorder. None of them had any form of psychosis or anything like that.
0: They ruled out bipolar, schizophrenia and saw some other interesting things.
3: They were actually a little bit more ambidextrous than the general population. Basically, they found enough to suggest that there might be something
0: neurological going on. So they published a very, very small study.
3: A preliminary sort of report in a journal called Medical Hypotheses. And then started on another study. But we're not not ready to um, talk about the data from that study.
0: I did, though, get one tidbit about this from Case... And again, this is very, 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 very preliminary. But she found that the same person will perform differently on certain tests depending on whether they are in male or female mode. For example, she gave the same person these mental puzzles that test spatial and language abilities. And Lulu, mm-hmm. you know how men are really good at um, supposedly <laughs> men are really good at kind of spatial directions? No, like spatial manipulation. What does that mean? I don't know how to explain it exactly, but, like—
1: You're a woman, so you wouldn't understand I'm a, it very well. I'm a well. woman,
0: so I wouldn't understand it very well, right. Um, like, take a geometric shape, rotate it in your mind, stuff like that. Okay, They found when they gave these tests to these people, when they were in their different states, they had different abilities.
1: Oh, wow.
0: So, like, when they were men, they performed more as men, and when they were women, they performed more as women.
3: Whoa. Yeah. We did see some uh, differences between gender states that were intriguing, um, but not conclusive. Anyway, here's the point. There's some evidence
0: that the shifts these people say that they are experiencing could be real. Which brings us back to Paige.
2: You know, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, am I male? Am I female?
0: I wanted to talk to her about what it was like to move in this way between categories. So let's just start with, like, your childhood. When now, I was kid. Paige didn't start off this way. She started off as a he and really didn't even have that experience that you sometimes hear about where people describe feeling from a very early age like they're trapped in the wrong body. That wasn't Paige's experience.
2: I mean, I love playing with GHOs.
0: And as a teen, too, he was a boy obsessed with the things that most boys are obsessed with.
2: I always thought about women. You
0: never thought you were yet. Uh-uh. Still, Paige says there were these strange momentary flashes that were disturbing.
2: I remember looking at girls and um, not just being attracted to them, but thinking that I was supposed to be them and wishing that I could kind of go over to the girl group and be accepted because that's where I felt I should be. And these thoughts were really inconsistent. It's not, I didn't always feel that way. So Paige grows up, graduates from high school, goes to college, and then really
0: starts to struggle. The flashes are still there. College is hard. Paige drops out and begins to feel really, really lost. And then, in a somewhat odd place, Paige finds relief in the Navy.
2: I love the discipline of it, the structure of it.
0: First of all, for some reason, in the Navy, the flashes go way down. I saw myself as being more of a guy than I ever did before. But really, it was while stationed at a naval base in Japan that Paige found relief in a way that will be familiar to many of you.
2: I walked around the corner, and I saw her, and she was just kind of bouncing around, and she was very energetic. And It was love at first sight. Immediately, I knew that there was something like special about her.
0: And even though Paige had never been a very aggressive person, Paige completely went
2: after this girl. I was smitten. I was immediately smitten. And it worked. We were just like this. We were so in tune with one another. I mean, we knew each other so good we could communicate like with a series of clicks. Like, what do you mean? We just, and like the other person would answer back and we know what we were like getting at.
0: And, and sometimes it would mean like. It could mean
2: be- like, how are you? Or it could just be acknowledging that, you know, you're there.
0: So began the best chapter in Paige's
2: life. I can't believe you're recording this. They get married, move to California. Got a home, had a car, had a steady job. I had everything that I ever wanted. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, it depends on the context. <laughs> and then Paige turns 30
0: and all of a sudden starts feeling really, really tired.
2: I, I mean, just coming up the steps, I would run out of breath. So Paige goes to see the doctor. And eventually, what they finally figured out was that my body thought it'd be a really fun joke on me to uh, stop producing testosterone. Basically, at 30 years old, I had the testosterone level of an 80-plus-year-old man.
0: So the doctors put Paige on testosterone replacement therapy, and very quickly, the exhaustion went away.
2: Physically, I felt like I had before.
0: But the flashes? They're back with a vengeance.
2: I would have those feelings again where I thought I was supposed to be female, except it wasn't. there wasn't anything subtle about it. It was a very strong feeling that something had gone terribly wrong and that I was not supposed to be male.
0: In these moments, Paige would look down at her body, this hard torso covered in hair, and feel utter disgust.
2: Imagine you woke up and your body was a cockroach, and it was really unsettling. Did you, so did you start talking to your wife about it? No, I was terrified, um, I didn't, I thought I was going crazy, um, I didn't want her to think less of me, and it was something that I, I kept inside.
0: Paige started telling me that occasionally during this period, to ease this feeling of disgust that came over her when she flipped into female mode but still had a male body, she would secretly put on women's clothes. She felt a need to cover this body that felt so
2: wrong with clothes from the right sex. It was just, I was just trying to do anything I could to, to make myself feel more female. So
0: I started asking questions about this.
2: Do you remember the first time you decided to do that?
0: Mm-hmm. But suddenly, the whole tone of the conversation changed.
2: I don't want to talk about it. Okay. All
0: right. So when was the... so after that? What happened? So like you. Um. Do you need to take a break? Um. Yeah. I'm cool. Yes, you're cool. You <laughs> want to take a break, or yes, you're not cool. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. Okay. Paige got up and disappeared around the corner. I could hear the faucet running in the bathroom. And when she came back, she wanted me to know something.
2: Um, if it matters, I flipped back into guy mode.
0: Okay, so is that why you don't want to talk?
2: It's just kind of like... It's just different now.
0: You flipped into guy mode. Mm
2: -hmm. Was
0: it when your eyes closed that you flipped into guy mode?
2: I don't know. So, are you in
0: guy mode right this second? Mm hmm. So, is it hard to answer questions? Mm
2: hmm. Okay. I can, I can, I'll be okay. I just need like a little bit.
0: We sat awkwardly for a while, neither of us quite sure what to do. It did feel like there was a difference in Paige, even in the way that she talked.
2: How, so, how are you doing? Um, I'm good. Are you male or female? Male. No. Okay,
0: is that okay? Yeah, let's do this. Paige explained that the next chapter of her life involved finding a name for what was going on with her. Bigender. People who consider themselves both female and male at the same time. She found it on a bigender website, and though only a small portion of the people on the website described flipping like Paige, it felt like this could be an explanation.
2: The way I felt was... Other people felt that way and it was it was real. It wasn't, you know, just some weird psychological construct.
0: But with this validation came a horrible realization. Paige had to tell
2: her wife. I told her that we needed to talk, and so sat down in separate chairs. I think I was on the couch and she was on a her recliner. Paige
0: was terrified. She was certain that her marriage would be over.
2: She was very visibly upset. Sorry. I was just God I was just begging her to to not leave and, and to accept me for who I was I couldn't I, I had lived for her for so long and I didn't know how I could live without her
0: But to Paige's surprise her wife said it's okay.
2: And she told me that everything was going to be okay and that we're going to make this work. And and she wasn't going to give up on me.
0: Paige couldn't believe how lucky she was. Together, they walked into the space between categories. Some mornings, Paige would wake up male, the husband her wife had married. That man would put on male clothes, go to work. Other mornings, Paige would wake up female, a woman trapped in this strange body. But they were doing it, helping each other through life in this odd space. But one problem remained. As much as the two of them could get used to the idea of flipping, Paige couldn't get used to the physical
2: experience of it. I came out of the shower one day, and I'd gone in in guy mode, and I came out in female mode. She was standing there, beginning to dry off. And I saw myself in the mirror, and I was so disgusted that I I threw up.
0: These kinds of feelings happened all the time. Now, Paige had come across a potential cure for this, a sort of homespun remedy that some of the bi-gender folks had written about online. It involved hormones. Paige would go on estrogen— to make her body more androgynous.
2: Bring my body to an androgynous point where I could present both as either male or female.
0: Apparently, it would reduce the shock of being thrown between categories so violently if her body was in a permanent state of in-between. So Paige decided to try it. She began estrogen treatments,
2: and it worked. The, the first time I, I got my first injection, I just felt this immense relief, like I was finally on the right track.
0: There was no longer the same physical discomfort. But as Paige finally was becoming comfortable in her own body, Paige's wife started to turn away. They began sleeping in different bedrooms.
2: It was almost like we were becoming strangers. And there just came a point where I realized that, you know, she wasn't suddenly going to...
0: I don't know. Except
2: you. She tried really hard. But it's really difficult.
0: Think about what developmental researcher Feishu said at the beginning of this program. When things don't have a clear category, that's scary for us all. They're a shape we don't recognize. Is the lump in the middle of the living room a couch? Or is the lump a bomb?
2: I felt like a monster. I felt like this terrible, like, alien creature that had come down and taken over her husband's life and taken him away from her. One night I heard her crying in the bathroom, and I asked her if everything was okay. And she said no. And she said it's over, isn't it? And I think the next day she told me to move out. I, I mourned for my marriage the same way I would mourn for like, you know, the death of you know my mother or, or someone who I was really, really close with. You can kind of see <laughs> right now just. It's really hard to talk about still.
0: Sitting there in Paige's apartment, the afternoon light fading in the window behind her, I was just struck by how hard her situation was. It's not just the fact that Paige wasn't in one clear gender category. She was stuck between categories in other ways as well. In the weeks before and after our visit, I had called around trying to get a handle on how to make sense of this experience that people like Paige describe. I had spoken to all kinds of people, therapists, historians, gender researchers, but it seemed like a lot of the people that I spoke to were convinced that the experience I was describing didn't really exist. There's no way they're actually flipping between genders, I was told by two different gender researchers in two different European countries. These people are just psychotic. Both of the men who told me this had worked in gender research for their entire professional careers, and they sounded extremely confident. A gender therapist in San Francisco was also skeptical, but she had a different reason. These people, are actually just normal transgendered people, she explained, in the sense that they are experiencing the same things that any transgender person experiences. They've just developed a different way of describing it. Same experience, different label, seemed to be her argument. In other words, it's not just that Paige was existing between genders. The problem was even more profound. Most of the people that I talked to didn't seem to believe that the experience that Paige was saying that she had was real like why do you think this happened to you like where does this come from in you
2: I don't know I've stopped asking myself that because it doesn't matter anymore where it came from I just kind of am what I am
0: When we talked, Paige seemed as mystified by what was happening to her as anyone else. But her experience, she concluded, was her experience. There wasn't that much she could do about it.
2: Like, my biggest worry is that I'm never going to really fit in to, like, female spaces or male spaces. I'm afraid that I'm going to be living the rest of my life in some kind of weird gender twilight zone.
0: What will you do then?
2: I don't know. I'll keep on doing my best.
0: More than a year after we first met, I called Paige up on the phone. I wanted to check in and see how she was doing. And it was clear from the very first moment she answered that something was different. Her voice sounded different. Higher. Hello? Hi, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can. Turns out, about six months after I went to San Diego, the flippings started to fade, and eventually Paige had settled full time into being a woman. The last time Paige had flipped into being psychologically male was in the fast food restaurant Five Guys, and she said it took her completely by
2: surprise. I'd gotten so used to constantly staying like I am, you know, now as a woman, that I thought it had stopped, and I remember I flipped really hard. It was, it was really bizarre. It felt like I was wearing a, a really uncomfortable sweater or something like that.
0: Now, Paige couldn't really explain why the flipping had stopped any better than she could explain why it had started. She said she thought the estrogen hormones she'd taken to make her body more androgynous probably had affected her. And Laura Case, the researcher who's been studying people like Paige, agrees that hormones do affect the brain. But still, there was no way to be absolutely certain But there was one thing that Paige seemed absolutely clear about. Living in one category, even if it's a category that's often discriminated against, like transgender women, is way better than having no category.
2: Oh my goodness, (laughs) yes! It's so much easier. It's so much more manageable. The world, to me, just, it makes so much more sense.
0: Now Paige knew what she was supposed to do where she could place her foot. She didn't have a wife, but she had that. Invisibilia will be back in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Cast Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit PocketCast.com NPR to redeem your trial.
1: From NPR News, this is Invisibilia. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Elise Spiegel. And today we are talking about categories. And we just heard a story about how hard life becomes when there is no category for you. And so now we want to ask, what's with that? Like, why are categories so important to us. You know, when you dive deep into your own category and surround yourself with people who are like you in some crucial way, what are you actually getting from that? Right. That's the question. And to help us answer it, Elise, I am now pleased to introduce you to a man who happens to have the best name
7: ever. I go by Iggy, Iggy Ignatius
1: That sounds like a rock
7: star. Yes, Ziggy and uh, Julio Iglesias.
1: (laughs) So Iggy Ignatius is an older Indian gentleman, born and raised in India.
7: I was born and brought up in Madras. Mm -hmm. Came here for my MBA at the University of Illinois.
1: He was 25.
7: When I left, I swore to myself that I'll go get my degree and I'll come back to my country. Yeah. So... Cut forward 26 years. 2006. Iggy's still here. Living in Lansing, Michigan. Not so much like India. (laughs) Not so much. Tons of snow.
1: And he wants to go back to India more than ever. It's all he wants in a way, what his whole life has been driving toward. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But with retirement actually approaching...
7: These seven pesky faces kept coming up in his mind. My daughters, my son, my grandchildren.
1: He didn't want to be far from them.
7: Right. And then the health care.
1: He worried about the
7: infrastructure. There is no guarantee that you could reach the hospital on time. And also? You know, most of the Indians get cremated when they die. Mm -hmm. And one of our uh, cultural thing is that usually the oldest son has to light the funeral pyre. Huh. Because they believe the soul goes to heaven only if it is lighted by the sun. So those things...
1: Kids, health care, a safe entry into the next life for your soul.
7: ...are all like chains that does not allow you to go back to India.
1: And he says this is not a thing that's just going on with him. He thinks that this this is like... This is the dilemma. This is the dilemma. For immigrants. yes. So anyway, one day in the cold, slushy environment of Lansing, it hits him, oh my gosh, what if I just created
7: an Indian retirement community in Florida.
0: Oh, that is kind of brilliant. Yep. He would build it to look
1: like an Indian village. Low buildings.
7: Big courtyard. There'd be
1: palm trees.
7: Greenery. He'd serve Indian food. Curry. Rice. Homemade yogurt. Mm -hmm. There'd be Indian music. Tabla. Harmonium. Yoga. Meditation. A prayer room. A small temple. Indian
1: tablecloths.
7: Bollywood movies.
1: And of course, the most important detail.
7: Other Indians.
1: Everyone there would be Indian. (laughs) His problem would be
7: solved. (laughs) Right.
1: So he comes up with a name for this place he dreams of building.
7: Shanti Niketan. Shanti means peace, and Niketan means house. So it's a peace house.
1: And he goes around the country meeting with other Indians to see if anyone would be interested.
7: And in every town I went, uh, as I was halfway through my presentation, one of them would raise the hand and say, but you stole our idea.
1: <laughs> because everyone was like, wait, we were thinking of doing this.
7: But nobody had done it. Mm-hmm. So
1: Point is, the response was overwhelmingly positive.
7: People were rushing to me, what do I need to do to sign up?
1: He immediately finds 10 investors dying to fund this all-Indian retirement community. And in August of 2008, they all meet down in Florida right near the site where he plans to build.
7: I still remember the date, August 2nd, 2008. Everybody handed me down their check.
1: And then...
3: This is CNN breaking news.
1: Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy. You may recall September America, 2008, the stock market crashes. Breaking news here. Stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. The and Dow is we enter into the worst down. financial crisis since the Great Depression. That's the largest single-day point
5: drop ever.
1: And so Iggy after regrouping with his wife, just starts trying to hawk his condos.
7: Hi, welcome to Shanti Niketan. I'm Iggy Ignatius, the CEO of Shanti Niketan.
1: Here he is in a Uh, YouTube YouTube tour he made, trying to sound upbeat. So
7: let us go out now and we'll take a tour of the place.
1: While all around him, literally across the street, houses are being foreclosed and residents are deserting the area.
7: My biggest challenge was across the street, you could buy a four-bedroom single-family home for $100,000. And I was selling here for $130,000 a two-bedroom condo, half the size of what you could get across the street for $100,000.
1: But it turned out... The fact that Florida was in the worst housing crisis in the history of the state was not a problem at all. Instantly he sold out an entire
7: wing of condos. I had enough money to build two wings. Sold two wings, I had enough money to for two more wings and the clubhouse. We were building this like a domino effect
1: and he was able to sell out all 54 units.
7: And it was still the worst market in the real estate going on in Florida.
1: That's amazing. Yeah,
7: that was the biggest miracle. That was the biggest miracle.
1: Which starts to raise the question,
3: what had Iggy
1: tapped into?
7: It is a gated community where you will be living with people of your own cultural background.
1: Like, why on earth were these selling out during the time of our worst, like the worst real estate market ever?
7: And there will be gates here and here, and the whole property will be fenced.
1: Is it this desire to be among your own? To be in your own category? Test, test. So I went down to Florida. Big palm trees in the entrance, a little waterfall. To ask Iggy and the people who had actually bought homes in Shantina ketan had they purchased that primal desire to stick with your own?
2: Hello! You, oh my goodness!
1: Do you guys still have time? And before I get to what they said, I just have to mention here how successfully Iggy had done it. He had created India. There was Hindu prayer. There was yoga.
0: Don't bend your elbows, make a mixer.
1: Customs I didn't realize I was supposed to observe. Oh, should I take off my shoes? Yeah. Sorry about that. It was surreal. (laughs) A real little microcosm. (laughs) So different from the world just outside its gates that as I walked around the property, it suddenly made me think about another perfectly insulated microcosm, the Augusta National Golf Club. So, Lisa, you know about this place, right? It's like the place where they only let in white people? Right. It's a golf club down in Georgia, which in 1990 did let in their first black members. And they let in their first woman in 2012. Oh, um, right. <laughs> but they, over the years, have always been surrounded by controversy because they only wanted to admit people of one category. And so if anyone doesn't want me to record... Just, just, you can just swap me away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so once I returned from my stroll, I approached a big group of people sitting around at a table after lunch and asked them, what if you flip this? You know, like, what if this was one of these country clubs in Georgia that only lets in white men. Is there something a little bit racist about what is happening here?
7: No, not at all. Your comparison to a Georgia country club is not fair.
1: Everybody pointed out that they are not excluding anyone.
7: We would let anybody in.
1: Which is obviously a crucial difference. Yeah. But no one was shy about admitting that part of what they were paying for was being around people like them. My God, Lulu, the, the happiness they give me. Really? Uh oh, it's life is goes better here. This one woman, Vijaya Garmela, said, just think about how exhausting it can be to live life as an outsider to a culture.
5: It's very hard.
7: For example, you know, I would dread... To go through a drive through to even buy a cup of coffee.
5: That's Iggy again.
7: Because when I asked her for a coffee, she just wouldn't understand. What? What do you want? And language wasn't the only
1: challenge that people brought up. There is a hesitancy yeah. here. The um, emotional chill that particularly Northeastern Americans can have. You cannot just knock at their door. Came up a lot. They'll look at you oh, oh, why didn't you phone me? Why didn't you do this thing? And Having grown up in the land of purse lips, I at least say this is a totally fair assessment of our people. No, it's true. I mean, I'm always afraid of bothering.
2: I had See, like... the thing, it's so, not know, bothering. Like... See, that's where it is. Why even say that word?
1: And so the return to a community of people just like you, it's a relief. Here, I can knock at her door and say, I'm here, and she's, she'll welcome me. It's so comforting. So... Is there a dark side to this homogenous heaven?
0: Very, very nice people are here. Very, very
1: nice people. Iggy admits that...
7: Unfortunately, yes. There is. Uh, A little. I don't want my children or grandchildren to live in a community like this. He thinks it's too insular. But retirement communities are places where people go waiting to die. And according
1: to Iggy, at that time,
7: it is beyond
1: your control. Whether you be majority or minority, you will
7: experience a deep primal desire to withdraw. Uh, look at the salmon. Okay, The salmon always swims upstream mm. to the place of its birth to spawn and then die there. And I think that is an animal instinct which we as human beings seem to have that aspect of us in it. Mm. So, is that true?
1: Is it just animal nature to get a little racist as death approaches?
5: Um, yes.
1: This is a scientist named Jeff
5: Greenberg. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona.
1: And for the last 30 years, he's been studying how we behave when death is on the
5: mind. That realization that someday uh, we're not going to exist.
1: And Iggy is absolutely right. If you raise the specter of death in a person's mind, which you can do experimentally, by the way, by simply asking a question like,
5: What do you think happens to you as you physically physically and once you're dead?
1: Hmm. People like people in their own group way better than they do when they're not thinking about death.
5: So we had them rate them on, you know, traits like, you know, honesty, kindness, intelligence.
1: Christians like Christians better. Italians like Italians better. And Germans who most of the time are actually pretty lukewarm on other Germans.
5: I think it's still it's lingering, you know, guilt.
1: If you get them to contemplate their own mortality, suddenly they really like Germans.
5: So if you interview Germans near a funeral home, they're much more nationalistic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's not just that we like our own more. Its reverse imprint is also true. We like people outside of our group much, much less.
5: People become more negative toward, toward other cultures. So,
1: why? Why might we do this?
5: Uh, well, because death haunts us as it does, we have to do something about it.
1: Greenberg thinks it's this strange way that we try to fend off death. His thinking goes that people who are not like you, who do not share your language or your values or your beliefs, well, in some very primal way, it's like they can't see you.
7: I would dread to go through a drive through to even buy a cup of coffee.
1: Which is unpleasant at any stage of your life, but particularly, Jeff says, at the end, when the threat of disappearing is becoming so visceral. My artery was 97% blocked when we found out. I practically died. Person after person at Shantina Ketan pulled me aside to tell me about their ailments. They took the hip bone and the fuser in the back, and they put the titanium rods and screws.
5: And so to manage the terror that we're just these transient creatures.
1: We shoo those people who make us disappear away. Right. That is, when you dive deep into your own category, (laughs) what you're actually getting is the illusion.
5: That we're significant. And we're enduringly significant.
1: Have you had Deaths. Yes, in, we had a
7: couple of people uh, pass away.
1: One of whom was
7: his wife. She had uh, suffered for a year with leukemia. And when she passed away, she had wished that she would be cremated.
1: And Iggy worked out a deal with the local crematorium so that his son was able to come in and light the cremation fire.
7: Yes. Tunkobi. That's very important, you know. The soul rests in peace if that is done.
1: Iggy sang this song
7: at her funeral. Kabhi alvida na kehena, kabhi alvida na kehena, which literally, kabhi alvida na kehena literally says, never say goodbye. All
1: right. So before we say goodbye for real, Mm -hmm. do you want to do a little interactive radio? I think it's time for some interactive radio. Okay. You, everybody out there, and you, Elise, are going to hear a story. And the way you respond to that story is going to tell you what category you fall into. But it's not a category of race or religion or gender. No, it's a different kind of category. Okay. The story is by Simon Rich and it's called the Children of the Dirt.
4: According to Aristophanes, there were originally three sexes. The children of the moon, who were half male and half female. The children of the sun, who were fully male. And the children of the earth, who were fully female. Everyone had four legs, four arms, and two heads, and spent their days in blissful contentment. Zeus became jealous of the humans' joy. So he decided to split them all in two. Aristophanes called this punishment the origin of love, because ever since, the children of the earth, moon, and sun have been searching the globe in a desperate bid to find their other halves. Aristophanes' story, though, is incomplete, because there was also a fourth sex, the children of the dirt. Unlike the other three sexes, the children of the dirt consisted of just one half. Some were male and some were female, and each had just two arms, two legs, and one head. The children of the dirt found the children of the earth, moon, and sun to be completely insufferable. Whenever they saw a two-headed creature walking by, talking to itself in baby talk voices, it made them want to vomit. They hated going to parties. And when there was no way to get out of one, they sat in the corner, too bitter and depressed to talk to anybody. The children of the dirt were so miserable that they invented wine and art to dull their pain. It helped a little, but not really. When Zeus went on his rampage, he decided to leave the Children of the Dirt alone. They're already f***ed, he explained. Happy gay couples descend from the Children of the Sun. (laughs) Happy lesbian couples descend from the Children of the Earth. And happy straight couples descend from the Children of the Moon. But the vast majority of humans are descendants of the Children of the Dirt. And no matter how long they search the Earth, They'll never find what they're looking for, because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world.
1: Interactive radio test, which category do you fall into? Test subject number one, Elise Spiegel.
0: Does that do anything for you? Medium.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's like you being nice. Yeah.
0: It does nothing for me.
1: So that reaction... Just crickets. ...is what gave me the idea that this story may be some kind of categories test. Because when I first read the story, I was in a little bit of a darker moment of my life. And I literally threw the book down with joy. So when Elise got crickets, I picked the book back up to figure out what was so great about it. And I discovered
4: that I think the source of its power comes from two words. Vast majority. The vast majority of humans are descendants of the children of the dirt.
1: With those two words, Simon Rich does a very kind thing. If you are someone who is alone and thinks yourself a little off in your aloneness, you are suddenly scooped into a box with a whole pile of other lonely people. And you feel better. And that is the strange power of categories. Because nothing about you is actually changing. But by simply getting a line drawn around you, you get some real relief. Yeah. It does nothing for me. Unless, of course... You aren't a member of this particular category, crickets. But for the people in the group, (laughs) this is Sean Cole, radio producer who happened to be stopping by during a rougher patch in his love life, and I forced him to read the story.
6: (laughs) The effect is real.
5: Oh, God. I think I'm a child of the dirt. (laughs) And I I like how they invent art and wine to dull their pain.
1: Me too, man. High five. Oh. Welcome to the club. So, if you laughed, if this story lifted your spirits in some tiny way, you are probably lonely. But here's the kind of frustrating thing. The founder of our most wonderful club, <laughs> Simon Rich.
4: I mean, you know, it's, I'm sh- sort of shocked that you asked me to read that one. Um, it's, it's, I'm usually not that bleak.
1: The story doesn't work for him anymore.
4: I actually now am in a really happy relationship.
1: He had me look at the dedication page in his book. For Kathleen. Yeah. How did you meet Kathleen?
4: We met, actually we met at a gay and lesbian fiction class. I assumed that she was a lesbian. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of me, but she uh, thought that I was a a transgendered female to male person. I
1: guess you're sprightly?
4: Yeah, I get a lot of... Thank you, ma'ams, when I shop, (laughs) We went on a date and, um... Fast forward over half a decade. We're going strong. Uh, I just sort of feel like a guy who won the lottery. Its charms are lost on him. Feels like it was written by a different person. (sighs) Ah, well,
1: for the rest of us. Who find its last two lines like a kind of worry stone.
4: Because there's nobody for them. Not anybody in the world.
1: Totally inert, but deeply soothing. Enjoy.
4: Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world. Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world. Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world. Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world. Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world. Because there's nobody for them, not anybody in the world.
5: I'm Sean Cole, and I'm a child of the dirt.
3: I am Jennifer Canton,
1: and I'm a child of the dirt. I am Megan Eckman. I'm Lulu Miller.
4: I am Austin Smith. I
2: am Ben Pajak. And, and I am a child child. of the dirt.
1: Children of the Dirt
0: will be back next week. Lulu. It's Invisibilia. OK. Dance party? Yeah. Invisibilia is me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Lulu Miller. Our editor is Anne Gudenkoff with help from Eric Newsom, Matt Martinez, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Madalika Sika. Production help by Brent Bachman and Brendan Baker. Music for this episode by Nick Ogawa. Special thanks to Simon Rich. His
1: story collection, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, is truly hilarious whether you are lonely or not. And now for our moment of non-zen. I think the top. All
0: right. Fine. Okay. I'll do it at the top.
1: You fished me, you brought me here I am the one that you chose Okay Oh, we're recording (laughs) Damn it, you just want to use that For me being a
0: Join us next time for more Invisibilia